Well, hey, Convergent Church, as always, it's an absolute joy and a privilege to be gathered with you this morning. And if you're joining us for your first time, welcome. My name is Dan, and I'm one of the pastors here at Convergent Church. We're so grateful that you've taken time out of your weekend to join us for worship. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Over the course of the last couple of months, we've been working our way verse by verse through the Beatitudes in a series we've titled, Blessed, where we've asked the following question, what does it mean to be blessed? It's a word that we use all the time. We use it when someone sneezes. We use it when we say goodbye, hey, God bless you. We use it to describe what we have, our possessions. Sometimes we use it to describe the things that we don't have, the bad things that we don't have in our life. But what does it really mean? On a hillside in northern Israel, Jesus preached the most famous sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. And he began his message with eight beatitudes, these eight pronouncements of supreme blessedness, with each having its own future reward. But as we've seen, the way he describes blessed seems upside down to the way that we would commonly use it. Right? We feel blessed when we've got good health. We feel blessed when there's money in the bank. We feel blessed when we finally laid hold to the latest Apple device. We feel blessed when we finance that new car and then drive it off the lot. We would say that these are blessings. We use it to describe these transient, often external things, these external gains in this lifetime, but Jesus has his eyes set on eternity, on things that won't pass away. And throughout the course of the series, we've seen that the Beatitudes are actually a char- the character and the portrait of a Christian because they're the character in the portrait of Jesus himself. And a Christian is what? A follower of Jesus. Now, it's important to remind us that these Beatitudes don't describe eight different kinds of people who belong to the kingdom of God, but rather the character qualities that will mark every true disciple of Jesus. And with that, this morning, we're going to wrap up the series with the eighth and final Beatitude. So Matthew 5, and in verses 10 through 12, we read this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Sorry, I should have forewarned you. This is going to be a little bit of a heavy message today. It's going to challenge us. It might even make us a little bit uncomfortable. I think if we're honest with ourselves, this isn't how we would have expected the Beatitudes to end. It's shocking, really. We've seen that those who are blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. I don't know about you, but when I try and think of a person who embodies all those things, I think, man, that person sounds incredible. That person sounds like someone that I want to be around. Who wouldn't want to be this person's friend? Someone who's humble, who's tender, who's strong, who's eager to bear the burdens of others, quick to forgive and show grace to others, someone who is integrous, someone who always pursues 
reconciliation. Not only that, but again, I think if we're honest with ourselves, there's this subconscious disposition in each one of us that thinks that when we embody these things, when we're living our lives as Jesus has called us to live, we think that everyone will like us and all will be right with our world. So I think if we had written this last beatitude, it maybe would have read something like this. Blessed are those who are praised for their righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's not what it says, is it? It's not recognition that those who are in Christ receive in this world, but rejection. It's not recognition that those who are in Christ receive in this world, but rejection. It's shocking. It's ironic. I think when we read through the rest of the Beatitudes, this one kind of seems like the outlier at first glance. It's the one that we're most prone to maybe glaze over or to rush through or maybe even put in the category of, that will never be me. Or maybe, I hope that will never be me. At first glance, it seems like a hard turn from the other Beatitudes, but let's consider where we've been thus far on this journey. Let's, let's have a little bit of a recap. We began in Matthew 5 and in verse 3 where we read, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is where our spiritual journey begins as disciples of Jesus. Here we see that we become children of God and citizens of the kingdom of heaven, not by our own works, but in realizing that we are spiritually bankrupt and desperately in need of the works of another to give us right standing before God. We see our spiritual poverty. We see our utter, our utter inability to clean ourselves up from the mess we've made, and we call to Jesus to save us. That's where it begins. And in verse 4, we saw, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That is to say, we don't only see our spiritual bankruptcy, but we mourn and we grieve over our sin. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Seeing our spiritual poverty and seeing our sin before holy God leads us to become a humble people. As we recognize we've done nothing to deserve the good gifts that God has given us. In verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. As we continue to spiritually develop as disciples of Jesus, as we've grieved over our sin, as we've been humbled, God replaces our sinful desires with a desire to grow spiritually, the desire to be more like Jesus. And then verse 7 said, blessed are the merciful. Here we see a shift from it being the individual well-being, right? The journey begins on our own, recognizing how destitute we are before God. But here is where it pivots from our well-being to the well-being of others as we grow as disciples of Jesus. As we grow, we begin to learn that we've been forgiven of a much greater debt than anyone could ever owe us. So as recipients of such mercy, grace, and forgiveness, this compels us then in turn to extend grace, mercy, and forgiveness to others who've sinned against us in the same measure from which we have received it from God in endless proportion. In verse 8, it says, blessed are the pure in heart. In our daily affairs, we are integrous towards others, transparently sincere in all of our personal and professional dealings. Verse 9, we saw, blessed are the peacemakers. As those who've been reconciled to God, we become agents of reconciliation to others. 
That's to say Jesus made peace for us, so we strive to actively live peaceably with all. And then that brings us to where we are this morning in verse 10, where it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So when we examine this journey as a whole, the development of the believer, maybe going from peacemaking to persecution, from reconciliation to rejection, maybe it isn't that big of a jump after all. Maybe it's a logical progression. Because the reality is this. In spite of how hard we try to make peace with other people, some will still refuse to live at peace with us. Not all efforts of reconciliation will succeed. Some will actually take up the initiative to oppose us. We saw this last week, right? Jameson uh, mentioned where, where Paul said, so much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all people. John Stott pointedly said it this way. He said, persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. Persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. And now, before we go any further, allow me to define the word persecution for us. Then from there, we'll spend our time addressing what Jesus isn't saying and what he is saying. So persecution, it means to pursue, to harass, to trouble, or to assault. Jesus is quite literally saying, happy are the harassed. (laughs) What a paradox. But now let's take special note of what Jesus isn't saying. He doesn't say, blessed are the persecuted, period. Blessed are the persecuted, end of sentence. The reality is that there are many causes that people can be a part of in this life and incur opposition for. There are all kinds of humanitarian efforts out there. There's all sorts of political activism that we can be involved in, some good, some bad. But for every cause one takes up, there will inevitably be people who believe that they're doing the right thing and support it, and people who believe that they're doing the wrong thing and thus oppose it. But Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the persecuted unilaterally. Here's what it does say. Rather, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Not all persecution is blessed. First things first, some people suffer the consequences of their evil. That's called punishment. That's not persecution. Some are persecuted for reasons other than righteousness' sake, but Jesus isn't here offering a general, blessings to all, a general blessing to all victims of every cause. Not all persecution is favored by God. Not all persecution is to be envied by others. Not all persecution has eternal value. The only persecution that is blessed by God is persecution for righteousness' sake. Persecution on account of his name. So a good question to ask then is, what does it mean to be persecuted for righteousness' sake? To be persecuted for righteousness' sake is to be persecuted for actively pursuing the kingdom of righteousness. It's persecution for your faith in Jesus Christ, for upholding and for walking in the truths of his word. 
It's persecution for acting like Jesus. It's persecution for being the hands and feet of Jesus. That word righteousness carries with it this idea of thinking, feeling, and doing what is right as God has defined it. The blessing comes when others insult us, harass or assault us, and speak untrue, evil things about us simply for being followers of Jesus. Simply for saying what he says and for doing as he has commanded. The persecution that is blessed is the persecution that comes on account of association with Jesus' name. John Stott once put it this way. Indeed, some will take up the initiative to oppose us and in particular to revile or slander us. This is not because of our weaknesses or idiosyncrasies, but for righteousness' sake and on my account. That is because they find distasteful the righteousness for which we hunger and thirst and because they have rejected the Christ that we seek to follow. Charles Spurgeon had this to say on the matter. He said, the only homage which wickedness can pay to righteousness is to persecute it. Throughout history, many have sought to attack and to tear down the church. Many have sought to attack and to tear down the Christian. But at the very heart of it isn't the offense of an individual, but instead the hatred for the righteousness of God and the rejection of the Christ that we follow. It's, for, it's persecution for righteousness' sake and on account of Jesus' name. So a question I'd like to pose for us this morning is, have you ever been persecuted for your faith in Jesus? Have you ever been persecuted for upholding and living out the truths of God's word? I think that there are two ditches that American Christians can easily fall into here. The first is this, the notion that we don't experience persecution in America because we live in a country where there's freedom of religion. You may be thinking to yourself, well, I've never been imprisoned for my beliefs or suffered physical harm like being stoned or flogged like other Christians throughout scripture. That's the persecution that we see in the New Testament. But look at verse 11 again. After Jesus declares who are persecuted for righteousness' sake as being blessed, he goes on to define the persecution for us as being those who are insulted, reviled, harassed, and assaulted, and have evil things falsely spoken against them. So you're right. We're, we're not persecuted like Paul was, or like Peter was, or like the church in the first century. We're not being persecuted like the Christians in China or other communist nations where the church is forced underground and receives corporal punishment when they're found out. But based on Jesus' definition here in Matthew 5, 11, Christians all throughout America are being persecuted. They do face insults. They do face this rejection and these verbal and physical assaults. The reality is that every follower of Jesus will experience persecution in some form in this lifetime. We'll get to that in a moment. But now on the other side of the road is another ditch American Christians can easily fall into. And that's the notion that anytime someone disagrees with me or anytime someone dislikes me, it's persecution because I'm a Christian. Listen, someone telling you that you believe in a fairy God is not persecution. 
someone telling you that they believe that your God is stupid or that the Bible is made up, that in and of itself is not persecution. Everyone's entitled to their own opinions. But allow me to say this. Just because you may be rejected by others as a Christian doesn't mean that it's always for righteousness sake. It's been said that just because the gospel is offensive doesn't mean that you're supposed to be. Right? The gospel is offensive because it's exclusive. It says that Jesus is the only way. That's offensive enough. We don't need to add to that. Some Christians receive persecution for self-righteousness sake. And Jesus has no blessing to offer for that. The reality is some Christians will be persecuted. They'll be insulted. They'll be harassed. They'll have evil things falsely spoken about them, not because of the message they preach or the biblical principles that they stand upon, but because of how poorly they themselves have actually treated other people. They pronounce judgment without the love, gentleness, and kindness of Christ and incur wrath because of it. That's to say there are Christians who are persecuted not because that they are so much like Christ, but because they are so much unlike Christ in the way that they treat other people. Anyone who's ever worked in the food industry knows that Christians are often the absolute worst people to wait on in a restaurant, right? Like they're entitled, they're rude, they don't tip well. Anyone who's worked in the the restaurant industry or the hospitality industry is well acquainted with that. It's not enough to believe the right things. For righteousness' sake means to believe and do the right things. Now, in years past, things like street preaching have gotten a bad rap because overzealous Christians whose hearts have become embittered towards the unbelieving world. So they stand on street corners, coldly pronouncing judgment on an unbelieving world, all the while forgetting the loving kindness and gentleness with which Christ first came to them. So take an honest look in the mirror when someone rejects you, insults you, harasses you, says something bad about you to others. Then have the self-awareness to ask yourself, is it for righteousness sake? Is it just because I'm a follower of Jesus or is it because I'm a jerk? More than that, go to another brother or sister in Christ and say, this was what was said about me, or this is what was done to me. Do you believe it to be true of me? Was it said or done because of character flaws or lack of spiritual maturity in me? Or was it simply for righteousness' sake? Now, with that aside, I'd like to to pose the same question again, right? We see the two ditches. The one side that says persecution is anytime something bad happens to me. The other side that says that we're not persecuted because it's just not to the extreme extent that we see in the New Testament. Have you ever been persecuted for your faith in Jesus, for upholding and living out the truths of God's word, given Jesus' definition here in Matthew 5, 11? I want to reiterate that persecution isn't just something that happened in the first century when people were stoned. It didn't just happen during the Protestant Reformation when the reformers were burned at the stake. It doesn't just happen in countries underneath communist rule today where people are unjustly imprisoned. Persecution is happening here. Persecution is happening 
in the city of Owasso. Several months ago, I shared the story of some friends of mine who own a local downtown business. And in preparation for Pride Month, a group of women who would identify themselves as progressives began canvassing downtown and going to every local business and asking them to hang a sign on the window that says, we're an ally, or asking them to, to hang the pride flag. Well, these friends of mine are Christians, and as Christians, they and we believe that God's word is totally true, that it's without error in its original manuscripts, and it's our final authority in faith and in practice. That being said, the Bible declares that God created us, man and woman. There are only two genders, which God defines for us. It also speaks of marriage being the explicit union of one man and one woman, one biological male, one biological woman. That being said, when this group came to my friend's store and asked for their visible support of this movement during Pride Month, my friends politely declined, and they just simply explained, we don't hang anything in our windows. We don't hang political things in our windows. We don't hang religious things in our windows. And they just politely declined and, and things went on. For remaining faithful to God and remaining faithful to what his word says, they just said, I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Now, the reality is this. The reality is that they love people and they've proven that in hiring people of all different religions and ethnicities and sexual orientation throughout the years. Everyone of their employees is treated with the same dignity, value, and worth because every person has been made in the image of God. But now there's a concerted effort in the works from the same group of people who are trying to get these businesses to hang ally signs for the sake of being inclusive. The same group is now organizing to boycott my friend's business and not just their business, but every business in Owasso that wouldn't hang the ally sign in the window. Now, it seems ironic to me for inclusivity's sake, but now we're going to exclude people. Now, it's, it was interesting for me to read some of the comments online about some of this stuff because one comment, speaking of a particular business, was like, man, we loved going there. Their service was always great. We loved going there. I, but I guess we need to find somewhere else to go now. What? Simply because it's owned by Christians who lovingly decline for the sake of their own conscience, not bringing reproach on anyone else. As I've already stated, persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. And persecution is the only homage with which wickedness can afford to pay righteousness. So when we see things like this happening in our community, when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ being labeled as hateful and bigoted simply for not participating in something, when we see people slander them and boycott their businesses, what should the Christian's response be? What should our response be to persecution? Do we retaliate? Do we get even? Well, that can't be the answer because that's the response of the unbeliever. Do we sulk in despair? Well, that can't be the answer either because that's the response that a child has during a temper tantrum. Should we merely lick up our wounds in self-pity? Well, that's what a dog does, so that can't be the answer. Do we grit our teeth and bear it without emotion? 
Well, that's how a stoic would respond, so that can't be the answer. Do we fake a smile and pretend like we enjoy it? Well, that can't be the answer either because that's what a masochist would do. So if none of these, how then ought the Christian respond to persecution for righteousness' sake? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 12, he says this, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad. From this Sermon on the Mount excerpt, we can deduce at least three reasons why we should rejoice and be glad when faced with persecution for righteousness' sake. The first is this. We rejoice because we've been counted worthy to suffer on Christ's behalf. Verse 11 says this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We rejoice because our sufferings are on account of our loyalty to Jesus, his standard of truth and his righteousness. In John 15, 18 through 21, Jesus put it this way. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. When we endure persecution in this world for being followers of Jesus, we rejoice because it's evidence of God's having chosen us out of this broken and sinful world to be his very own. They hate us because they hate Jesus. And they hate Jesus because they do not know the Father. We also see this kind of rejoicing happening in Acts 5, 41 through 42. Shortly after Jesus died as the once and for all sacrifice for sin and rose from the grave and ascended to heaven, the church was born and he poured out his spirit at Pentecost. The Spirit empowered his disciples to boldly proclaim the truths of the gospel, just as the Spirit does for you and I today, right? The, the Spirit fills us and emboldens us to speak forth the truth of God's word. But in Acts 5, we see this incredible story of Jesus' disciples being imprisoned by the high priest for preaching the gospel, for casting out demons, and for healing people in Jesus' name. We're told that during the night, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and opened the prison doors and he tells the apostles to go and speak the words of life in the temple. And in spite of having just been arrested and just having been imprisoned for teaching people about the way, off to the temple they went and they preached. Later that day, the, the same high priests and the council were like, where did those guys go? We just put those guys in prison. They went and they tracked them down at the temple and they brought them back in to custody for preaching the gospel again. And what does Peter do <laughs> when they begin questioning him? He preaches the gospel again. This is the third time in a row. And this gospel enrages them. It says that they want to, to kill the apostles. 
But they had this little group powwow. They cooled down and ultimately decided to just beat the disciples and command them to stop speaking the name of Jesus. Then they sent them on their way. And after all that, here's what we see in Acts 5, 41 through 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching the Christ is Jesus. We rejoice because we've been counted worthy to suffer on Jesus' behalf. Secondly, in the text, we see this. We rejoice because we have a great reward in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12 says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Charles Spurgeon once said, the Lord's Daniels are hated because they are blessed by that which looks like a curse. Ishmael mocks Isaac, but nevertheless, Isaac has the inheritance and Ishmael is cast out. Ishmael is cast out. You see, the world may hate us, they may persecute us, yet the inheritance still belongs to us. It still belongs to the Christian. No amount of insult, slander, beatings, or even death itself can remove our citizenship from the kingdom of heaven or remove the eternal reward that we have with Jesus. When it says your reward is great in heaven, it's saying that God himself has reserved a place for you. James 1 says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And I know I shared this one a few weeks ago, but I think it's worth sharing again. Revelation 21, three through four, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We rejoice because we have an eternal reward in heaven that cannot be removed from us. And thirdly, in the text, we see this. We rejoice because persecution is the Christian's certificate of authenticity. Again, in verse 12, it says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We can rejoice when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake because we belong to a noble succession. Think of Elijah and Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, all the prophets of old. They were all persecuted for standing where the word of God stands and for speaking forth what the Lord had spoken to them. So we can readily see persecution as a sort of token of our faith's genuineness, a certificate of authenticity. It's a rite of passage. When we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, it should be as assurance to us of our inheritance to come. Because all the prophets before us, the apostles, the reformers, they were all persecuted and received their reward. And as we discussed earlier, Jesus himself was persecuted, so we should expect it. 
This should bring comfort to us. It should give us great assurance that we're on the right track. Listen, when we can come to terms with the reality that God is sovereign over all of his creation and that nothing happens apart from his will, bad things no longer happen to us, but bad things actually happen for us. That's to say we no longer have to be victims of our circumstances because we can see that this persecution, that this suffering is God's prescription to sanctify us, to transform us more and more into his image. He uses every single hurt we encounter in this life to make us more like Jesus. We can rejoice in the face of persecution because it's a certificate of authenticity. As we wind down this morning, if you take nothing else away, the the point that I'd like you to hold fast to is this. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are blessed because they've been counted worthy to suffer the name of Jesus, suffer for the name of Jesus, and will reap an eternal reward. The question that I think we all need to ask ourselves in light of that is this. Am I living a life that's worthy of persecuting. Here's the deal. If if you never want to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, the, the formula is very simple. Approve of what the world approves of. Make your stance for what's popular and what makes sense emotionally. Also, never voice what you believe like the reality that there's a literal heaven and a literal hell, that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and that all of Scripture is the word of God, all of it. Never take a stand against the sins that our culture approves of, things like abortion or racism or the reality that marriage is defined by God as a covenant between one man and one woman. If you don't want to be persecuted, never have conversations about your faith. Never share the gospel. I'm telling you, if you do this, you will certainly not be persecuted and you'll live a very easy life. But that's also not the life of a disciple of Jesus. I encourage you to heed Jesus' warning from Luke 6, 26, where he said, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Here we see that universal popularity, being favored by all people, is the lot of false prophets, whereas persecution is the mark of true followers of Jesus. Jesus quite literally told us that in this life we will encounter trouble and tribulation for our faith in his name, but that we can take heart because he has overcome the world. The end is certain. It has been written. Consider 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, where Paul said, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul compares all the persecution and all the sufferings that we will face in this life as light and momentary when contrasted with the eternal weight 
of glory that they prepare for us. The question then is this. Do you want to live for the transient favor of the world that's passing away or the eternal favor of God in life forevermore in his kingdom? Before Jesus' ascension, he gave us our marching orders, the Great Commission. He said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As disciples of Jesus, this is our mission. This is our lot. The question is, are you willing to live it out? The reality is that there's only one name that can save people from their sin. There's only one way to eternal life, and that is through Jesus. God's love for you is so great that when mankind turned away from him, when they sinned, when they rebelled, when they, when they chose to find their satisfaction in the world instead of in God himself, and when we followed in that sin, it alienated us from God. But God wasn't satisfied to leave us to meet the end that we deserved. He wasn't satisfied to leave us to meet the eternal separation from his grace and his goodness or the eternal damnation to hell that we deserved. So he sent his only son, Jesus, to this earth on a rescue mission to pay the ransom for your sin, to pay the ransom for my sin with his own life. And Jesus lived the sinless life that we failed to live and took the punishment that we deserved for our sin. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross and ultimately died the once and for all death for sin so that we might have eternal life. And Jesus rose from the grave on the third day, conquering the power of sin's tyranny over us. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning until he puts all of his enemies under his footstool. And now all who call upon the name of Jesus, all who turn away from their sin and believe in their hearts that Jesus is Lord will be saved. There's coming a day when we all have to give an account of what we did with the life on earth that God has given us. And those of the world will be judged for their wickedness and rebellion against his kingdom. So, shall we live for the acceptance of man today or the acceptance of God for all eternity? Do we live for the acceptance of man today or for the acceptance of God for all eternity? Jesus came to be our light in a dark place. And he now commissions us to be his light in the dark places of Owasso, to herald his name, to share the hope of the gospel that transcends the grave. And I know I mentioned this after Jameson's sermon last week, but what a great comfort it should be to us that we don't serve a God like the gods of the world who say, do as I say, not as I do. And sharing the gospel and standing firm on the foundations of God's word, and in partaking in persecution for his name's sake, Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he himself did not do. He set the example for us. 
The author of Hebrews tells us to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. So in the face of persecution, we can rejoice and we can endure. As we look forward to Jesus, the author and the completer, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith and our eternal reward in the kingdom of heaven. But then we can also look back at those who've come before us, all the saints, the prophets, uh, the apostles, the reformers who endured persecution and received their reward. I'll leave you with this last quote from John Stott. He said, the world dreams of progress or power and of the future, but the disciples meditate on the end, the last judgment and the coming of the kingdom. To such heights, the world cannot rise. So church, may we not grow weary in doing good, for in the end, we will reap the reward if we do not give up. Jesus exalts those who the world pities. And he calls those who the world rejects 